the Nebraska Lecture Series celebrates the university's 150th anniversary. You can find videos of the monthly lectures at research.unl.edu slash Nebraska Lectures. This lecture features Kay Logan Peters, professor of university libraries. She tells the story of University Hall, the University of Nebraska's first building. Dr. Logan Peters created an online resource that traces the timeline of university buildings. She is the author of a book that features more than 180 historic images of Nebraska U. It's, um, it's my privilege today to be here to share our university's history with all of you. 25 years ago, I very innocently began collecting facts here and there about old university buildings. As the architecture librarian, I would occasionally meet up with a student or a class that wanted to know where a particular building was located or what had become of a particular building, why we didn't have any historic buildings to speak of. Um, and this information was actually really kind of difficult to find. Um, at this time, we had kind of a limited interest in the university's history. We were between the 100th celebration, and we were a long way from this one. Um, and we really, I'll just say it, we had zero appreciation for our old demolished buildings. Most people didn't know they'd ever existed. Um, so I was interested in learning more about the buildings, more about how campus grew, and why so few of our original structures remained on campus. I worked in Architecture Hall, which of course is now the oldest building on campus, and I knew its history as the former university library, but I wanted to know more about the other buildings. About the time I was getting seriously interested and considering something really crazy like writing a book, um, Robert Knoll beat me to it with the publication of Prairie University. This was 1995, and he was infinitely more qualified and knowledgeable than I was. And I was certain I'd blown my chance. Um, his book seemed so comprehensive, and I just couldn't imagine what else there was to uncover. Then I ran into Robert at a library event, and he encouraged me to keep digging. This is my bad Robert imitation. Oh my, you mustn't let me stop you. There is so much more. There is so much more. <laughs> and so I kept at it, and I'm grateful for Robert's encouragement. And he was right. There was so much more. So let's start at the beginning and talk about how the legendary and now infamous University Hall came to be, or as it was known in the first 15 years of its, exist of its existence, the university. Clearly the first governor of Nebraska, David Butler, and members of the State Building Commission envisioned a great university upon, built upon the principles laid out by the new Land-Grant Act of 1862. The building they located and constructed on the original campus was very grand, particularly compared to this little, dusty little town of Lincoln that, it, that was home to perhaps a thousand people in 1869. Lincoln was in its infancy, and um, it was newly named. It had no sidewalks, 
no public utilities, no brickyard, and the railroad had not yet arrived. The university building was bigger than the Capitol. To build such a large and imposing structure was indeed audacious. In June of 1869, the State Building Commission interviewed four architects, and they provided plans and explanations. After deliberating, they selected the plans of J.M. McBird, M.J. McBird, get that right, of Logansport, Indiana. And McBird described his design as Franco-Italianate. Shortly after, they hired J.D. Silver and Sons, also of Logansport, to serve as contractors. If there's a villain in the story of University Hall, it is most likely Robert Silver, the son, who a few years later became the mayor of Lincoln, twice. Construction commenced and the cornerstone was laid on September 23rd in 1869. So this gives us one more date to celebrate later this year. <laughs> we always need another party. Um, Silver built a brickworks nearby to supply bricks and these bricks were part of the problem. The bricks were not hard fired, they were a little bit soft. Um, and lumber was hauled in in wagons from Nebraska City. Things did not progress smoothly. Silver was not a hands-on supervisor. And several men were killed and seriously injured when scaffolding collapsed uh, as they were building the upper levels um, of the building. Rumors of the foundation, pro of foundation problems persisted from the beginning. Indeed, the sandstone used for the foundation which was mined locally, was too porous and soft. By the time construction was nearing completion in the spring of 1871, the rumors regarding the basement could no longer be ignored. The regents and others toured the building and deemed it sound, but acknowledged that the basement needed some replacement of imperfect materials. Classes commenced in the fall, 1871. There was Chancellor Benton, four other faculty members, 110 students who were not really in college but were attending the preparatory school, and 20 university students. Good. So what went on inside the walls of this building? Everything. Faculty didn't have offices. But there were recitation rooms, laboratories, the chancellor's office, a library, a music room, rooms for the Palladian and Union Literary Societies, and those were really um, very important to the social life of the community, the campus, students and faculty. And there was also a very large portion of the building that was devoted to the chapel. Most private universities were affiliated with churches at this time, and when the Land-Grant Act was passed, citizens and administrators hadn't figured out how to separate public education and religion. Chapel was held daily, and all students were required to attend, and I'm sure faculty were as well. The chapel in University Hall was notoriously unpleasant. It was cold, it was drafty, and it was damp. And in fact, the entire building was so damp because the original roof leaked, causing Chancellor Benton to note in 1872 that 
some difficulty has been experienced in making the roof impervious to rain. <laughs> that was an understatement. Air in the library was described as a miasma, and this was most likely due to coal-burning stoves that didn't really heat the building but kind of took the edge off. I think if they got the building up to about 60 degrees, they were probably thrilled. Boys were hired to constantly stoke the stoves, and ashes were heaped next to the chapel. Neighborhood children would scale this giant mountain of ashes for a glimpse into the mysterious goings-on inside the university. The first floor recitation rooms were also especially foul, since Professor Frank Billings, who was striving to cure hog cholera, kept his hogs directly below in pens in the basement. Everyone agreed that an animal pathology facility was needed. <laughs> they, they never did build one. <laughs> Instead, they got in a fight with Frank Billings, and he left the university. Um, in this photo, the uh, sort of un less ornamented portion of the building is the chapel. And this photo was taken uh, quite a few years after the university was founded in the 1890s. But uh, that's the notorious chapel, and this is the corner where the giant ash heap was built. Problems with the University Hall truly retarded the development of the institution in the very early years. In 1877, the entire foundation had to be replaced due to continuing deterioration. The entire roof was replaced in 1893. And often the city of Lincoln was expected to foot the bill for these repairs. I think many legislators thought, you got it, you wanted it, you fix it, Pete Lincoln. <laughs> um, state money spent on, uh, that was also spent on these repairs was money that was not spent on faculty salaries, laboratory equipment, library books, and other needs. Political enemies of Lincoln and the university repeatedly cited problems with the building as justification to close the entire institution down and move it to their own cities, usually Omaha or Nebraska City. In 1889, agricultural interests attempted to remove the land-grant portion of the university and start a state university elsewhere. Um, Iowa State at this time was called the Iowa Agricultural College, and I think agriculture people within the uh, state saw that and thought, maybe we should just take that from the university and set up our own set up our own school in our town wherever they were from they wanted it there um, eventually after the hiring of charles bessie in 1884 and the construction of a few new buildings on um, on the campus in the late 80s the subject of removal finally started to die down um, this photo is um, an image from the Nebraska, the Omaha Bee, Omaha Daily Bee, which was a um, newspaper in Omaha that was fairly hard on the university, not 100% of the time, but often. And this particular image is about a bill that a Senator Mullen from Omaha introduced um, to remove the university from Lincoln and move it to Omaha. He was going to turn our campus over to the state asylum and, and then have the legislature, along with the city of Omaha, purchase property up there. And his rationale was Omaha's bigger, 
we have more people. We we have the uh, we have the railroads. We have um, we deserve it. We deserve it more than Lincoln does. Luckily, it was squelched. The bill did not pass. University Hall had many problems, but it did also have some improvements. Um, the building continued to evolve, continued to have problems, and in the late 1880s, to everyone's great relief, steam heat was introduced. Sewer lines were added in 1891, bringing the miracle of flush toilets to University Hall. By 1919, when the university celebrated its 50th anniversary, the old bell tower the old, the old bell in the tower was cracked, and the exterior walls were wearing what Chancellor Avery called the corduroy effect, created by a system of vertical metal posts and rods. So the image we're looking at here is a plan that was drawn up for adding the sewer lines. Here's the old bell. And this, this is the bell that's over at the Alumni Association. It's still cracked. It doesn't have a clapper, so it doesn't ring right anymore. Um, but that's where it was located on University Hall, right over the front door. And then here is, um, I hope you can see this. This is an image that shows this system of rods and posts that were installed on the front and the back of the building. Um, the, um, they look like downspouts. It's these, these three metal pipes that run down the front of the building. Um, they held the building rigid this way. And then uh, these kind of star-shaped um, metal plates anchored the rods that ran through the building from front to back. So it, it's kind of shocking when you think about it that we let hundreds of students walk, walk around in this building that's kind of held together like tinker toys. Um, but anyway, that, that's, that was what Chancellor Avery called the corduroy effect. Despite the terrible condition of University Hall, most former students were very attached to the old wreck. Edna Bullock, <clears throat> a librarian and alumna who grew up in the shadow of University Hall, had this to say at the 50th anniversary. This is her quote. Old U Hall in spite of your Franco-Italian Hoosier architecture, <laughs> plus the corduroy effect, in spite of all the disadvantages of primitive building, which no amount of repairing and altering can entirely mitigate, the alumni and students salute you. Every brick, every stone, every worn step and threshold, the old cracked bell, the red roof, the useless old tower, with the flag of our country flying against the incomparable blueness of Nebraska sky, like what we have today. All these are inseparable from our intellectual and spiritual inheritance. The storied past speaks to us from your walls, the lingering memories of youth's brightness cluster about you. So clearly she was attached. And from Louise Pound, who worked in the building for many years, in the same 50th anniversary publication, Louise wrote, about U-Haul. Its recitation rooms and offices, which house classes in history, language, literature, and rhetoric, look time-stained and battered 
in comparison with the new and attractive quarters of the natural sciences, the technical sciences, the social sciences, and the vocational and agricultural schools. But those who teach in the old building are glad to do so. Indeed, they take pride in doing so. They feel a deep love for it, for University Hall is the historic building among those on the campus, and the classes residing in it are those first desired by the founders of the institution. She's kind of making a pitch here for the arts and sciences, the College of Arts and, arts and Sciences, and you know the university is changing, and new, new, new colleges are forming, and um, there's a little more competition than there had been in the early days. Not many years later, it was determined that the upper levels of University Hall needed to be removed for safety's sake. That's an understatement as well. The upper stories, including the tower, were carefully demolished in 1925. The sad remnant of University Hall remained in its decapitated state. And that language comes from the Board of Regents minutes. I didn't make that up. <laughs> for another 20 plus years, and it was finally demolished for good in 1948. In its place, we constructed Ferguson Hall, which was demolished in 2010. If you note, um, right between the trees in this photo, there's a lamppost. And that lamppost stood in front of University Hall and was really the first light on campus. Let's shift now to what was happening on the rest of campus during the 19, in the late 19th century. What did Charles Bessie see when he arrived on campus in 1884? Standing on the threshold of University Hall, he probably, probably saw a thriving little city south of campus since Lincoln was a boomtown in the 1880s. The population increased by more than 40,000 people during this decade. He also saw a weedy-looking, expansive lawn and one difficult building. But the following year, in 1885, construction began on the first chemistry laboratory. This is the building where Rachel Lloyd, most likely the first American woman PhD in chemistry, conducted research in sugar beets. To help you visualize where these buildings were located, we'll take our, I'll give you a little tour now. Um, this is an old fashioned, this is very low tech compared to what my friends at NET are doing. Uh, right in the center, we see a building marked UH, that's University Hall. Down in your lower, that's your right, um, you see CL, that's the chemistry lab. Buildings tended to develop up along 12th Street, which is the street on the east side of the campus there. During the next decade, the university was able to construct several more new buildings, including the first Nebraska Hall. This building was home to the Industrial College, and Charles Bessie served as its dean. Unlike University Hall, it had problems, although they were not quite as severe. It was home to the first agricultural experiment station following passage of the Hatch Act, which Bessie co-authored. It was home to museum collections, which were beginning to grow pretty rapidly after the arrival of Erwin Barbour in 1891, the, the first director of the State Museum. 
who was here for like 50 years. It was home to many science labs and recitation rooms where Bessie and his new faculty hires, such as D.B. Brace and Lawrence Bruner, taught core science courses. There's just another image of, of Nebraska Hall. It's kind of a scary looking building. Most of you have probably heard of Ellen Smith, often called Ma Smith. Both beloved and feared, she was a campus fixture from the mid-1870s until her retirement in 1901. Ellen Smith was the first woman faculty member hired at the University of Nebraska. She wore many hats over the years, including principal of the Latin school, librarian, and primarily she served as registrar. George Howard recalled that Smith was loved by students even by those whom she rebuked for their shortcomings. And she was respected by her colleagues, even by those whom, as registrar, she frankly scolded for laxity in rendering their official reports. In other words, get your grades in. <laughs> of course, now we have a high-rise dormitory named in her honor. I lived there. And here's a picture of Charles Bessie in his office in Nebraska Hall. He spent almost his entire career in Nebraska Hall, except the first few years before, um, but between the time he got here and the time this building was constructed. I love this photo. Eventually, Nebraska Hall was demolished to make way for other things. Here we see Chancellor Hardin, in 1962 with the cornerstone designed by Bessie with the inscription that Bessie wrote, Science with Practice. And I think that really sums up his career beautifully. And this is what we built on the site of the old Nebraska Hall. Here's an architect's rendering from the mid-1960s Hamilton Hall. During the earliest years of the university, a farm was established near the present Innovation Campus, or the old state fairgrounds. When the soil there proved too poor, um, proved very poor, it was decided to purchase a farm east of the city near the current 33rd and Holdridge. A small stone house and some outbuildings were there, and a large frame dormitory was constructed in 1875. But there were really almost no students at the farm. The professor in charge of the farm worked and taught downtown, and he had no employees. So the, far the farm didn't look very good. The farm was the subject of a lot of criticism. Eventually, a farm superintendent was hired and lived in the dormitory. In 1899, Bessie used funds from the Hatch Act proceeds as, par as part of um, um, the Hatch Act. The university received $15,000 a year. And that act was passed earlier in the 1890s. And Bessie saved just a little money um, out of each of those annual allocations. And he was able to use those proceeds to construct the first, the first freestanding agricultural experiment station, which currently stands as the oldest building on the East Campus. There was a, um, a little dairy building where dairying was taught in the mid, that was built in the mid-1890s. Um, but it's been gone for many years. Bessie took a strong interest in the farm and was instrumental in helping it to develop. In 1910, he reflected on his early years at the university and his experiences regarding the farm. 
This is what Bessie wrote. Accordingly, I became a professor of botany and horticulture in the fall term of 1884, and this was my title for nearly eight years. What these eight years accomplished cannot be told briefly. In the first place, at that time, all teaching was done on the campus in the city, no beginning having yet been made for schoolwork on the farm. Then, too, the farm was a very long way out into the country at that time, as the whole distance from the Antelope Valley to the farm was filled with cornfields, wheat fields, orchards, and even wild and unbroken prairie land. In muddy weather, one had great difficulty in traversing the soft dirt roads, and it was a bad hour's drive from the city to the old stone farmhouse and the rather shabby barns and sheds. This really conjures up a, a journey. Eventually, in 1889, S.K. Perrin was hired as superintendent of the farm and whipped it into shape. S.K. Perrin's real name was Senator K. Perrin, and he never liked that name. He went by Will. But in reality, as time passed and he spent more, more and more years at the farm, he was known to everybody as Dad. Perrin is, of course, the namesake of the Perrin porch located on the, south, the lawn south of the old experiment station building at the site of the old dormitory. That dormitory became his family's home for many decades. Perrin and his wife, Laura, raised their four children at the farm and saw, um, and saw the farm evolve and saw students evolve as well. He remained a farm campus fixture until his death in 1930. I want to quickly explain what was happening on the city campus in the last years of the 19th century. Several buildings were constructed that did not stand the test of time, but were very important to the evolution of the campus. Almost simultaneously, simultaneous with the construction of Old Nebraska Hall was the construction of Grant Memorial Hall. Located just north of the chemistry lab on 12th Street, Grant, which was also called the Armory, housed the military science program and served as a small gymnasium. In 1900, a large addition was added, and it included a new uh, chapel that housed a pipe organ. I think the old chapel became more library space, plus it was so unpleasant. So they added... Um, Uh, they, the, um, an organ was purchased by alumni. I'm going to go to that photo. Um, this organ was purchased by alumni from the Trans-Mississippi Exposition in Omaha, which was held in 1898. Um, and alumni purchased it. They took it apart. They brought it to Lincoln, and they installed it in Old Grant Hall. Uh, actually, a new addition to Grant Hall. Um, Grant Hall was designed by architects from Omaha, Mendelssohn, Fisher, and Lawry, and we'll see more of this firm in a few years. Grant really provided the first gathering spot for the campus, and in many ways it served as the first student union. The temple also was kind of a union, um, sort, of, sort of a union, but the temple wasn't built yet at this time. No dances were allowed, for surely dances led to sin. But other events took place there, such as the annual singing of the Messiah. In its later years, Grant was home to, the women's, to women's physical education, a field in which Nebraska was always the leader, and in fact, we were the first 
um, university in, in the country to have a degree in women's physical education. It was condemned by the state fire marshal and demolished in 1966. I think it suffered from some neglect. In 1891, Lieutenant John J. Pershing arrived to serve as head of the military science program. His office was located in Grant Hall, where he managed to make military science popular with students who were required to take it as part of our, part of our land-grant mission. And if you look closely here, this is the doorway of Grant Hall. I know what the doorway of Grant Hall looks like, but <laughs> that's where this is taken. Pershing retained ties to Lincoln for many years since his sister May continued to live here after P Pershing moved on. And in fact, she raised Pershing's son Warren here after his wife and all three of his daughters died in a terrible fire at the Presidio in San Francisco. While he was stationed in, at Fort Bliss in Texas, his sister May's home stood at 1748B. That home has been raised. Pershing and Chancellor James Canfield were at, the, were at the university during the same years. When Canfield arrived in Lincoln to visit campus, prior to accepting the position, it was kind of a, kind of a sorry sight. I'll just say it. But the regents were already in the process of beautifying the grounds and were building a decorative iron fence that surrounded the original campus for many years. In 1892, the grounds were landscaped with ornamental plantings and real sidewalks. Prior to this time, the sidewalks were gravel, they were mud, they were wooden boards, but they put down real pavers. Around, um, also around this time, the campus was electrified, as were most of its buildings. Gone were the gas lights that were never quite adequate, apparently everywhere but in the library in University Hall. So students, students complained about this bitterly, that there was decent light everywhere but in the library where they most wanted it. But shortly after Canfield's arrival, funding was made available to start work on the new library. Canfield was painfully aware that most buildings on campus were troubled. In fact, when he arrived in June of 1891, he was asked to give the commencement address his audience quickly learned of his exceptional oratory skills, since he had to make himself heard over the racket of a steam pump, which was draining the basement of University Hall <laughs> following a rainstorm the previous evening. Canfield decided that no more bad buildings would be constructed on his watch. When library construction started in 1892, Canfield insisted on hiring a foreman who, whose name was George Smith, and apparently, this was not done for public buildings. Uh, there was nobody advocating for the public. So the contractor was always working for himself, himself, which explains why all of the early buildings had these issues. Uh, the Univer University Hall wasn't the only problem building constructed in the 1870s. The Capitol was re completely replaced, uh, probably when it was 10 years old. So. He hired George Smith to advocate for the university. High-quality materials were expected, and Smith and Canfield both rejected poor delivery, deliveries of poor brick and stone. The amount that was funded by the 1891 legislature proved to be inadequate 
So the regents and Canfield decided to just build as much as possible and then ask for more money during the next legislative session. Now that is bold and audacious. <laughs> but it backfired. <laughs> when the legislature reconvened in 1893, Canfield went to the Capitol and asked for more money. But the state's economy was in serious trouble. Drought, grasshoppers, and loss of population plagued the state, and no money was appropriated for the unfinished library. The university made no attempt to disguise the job site, and they let weeds grow up around the project, which led the Nebraska State Journal to call the library that melancholy ruin. That was Charles Gere. Charles Gere really was our, um, our first real advocate. He was a senator. He was on the committee that chartered the university. And he used, and he was on the Board of Regents. He was president for many years. He hired Canfield. But he also um, used the Nebraska State Journal to kind of counter some of the negativity that was coming out of the Omaha newspapers. The library's forlorn appearance was made more glaring by contrast to the newly improved grounds. Finally, the, 19, the 1895 legislature made another appropriation so that the library could be completed. Designed by Mendelssohn, Fisher, and Lawry, architects of Grant Hall, it was considered one of the finest library facilities in the country when it finally opened for business later that year. The library was shared by both the, the art department and art gallery on the upper floor and the State Historical Society on the ground floor. It was decades before the library regained these spaces for library work. Pictured here is Carrie Bell Raymond with the University Chorus in 1922. So 30 years later, and the space was still not devoted to library purposes. This distinctive room is now the Architecture Library Reading Room. And matter of fact, my office is right about where that piano is. <laughs> And here is um, um, a decent picture of the iron fence. And many people in Lincoln know the story of the iron fence. It, it surrounded the campus from 1892 until 1922. Um, but by 1922, the campus had grown. And the original campus was sm smaller than the um, newly purchased property to the east. People were very divided about the fence. Alumni loved the fence. It was a symbol of when they went to school, and they were sentimental and attached to it. But students felt like the fence was constraining the university and that it sent the wrong message. So the fence was removed in 1922 and erected on O Street along uh, Waiuka Cemetery. So every time you drive down O Street, you're driving by our old fence. I don't profess to know everything about the university's history, but I do know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> I've been here for almost 40 years. <laughs> this stone marks the ashes of Professor James T. Lees and is located on the east side of the old library. Professor Lees, who was um, a professor of Greek, wanted his ashes scattered on campus and he wanted his marker to be on the campus. Um, when the university was academically reorganized in 1914, Professor Lee served as the university's first provost. After the turn of the century, the quality of buildings improved considerably. 
Brace, Richards, and the original administration building were all constructed in the first decade of the century, along with the original museum, which was the precursor to Morrill Hall. After years of, of pleading, uh, D.B. Brace was finally getting a new building. Also designed by Mendelssohn, Fisher, and Lawry, but very different from the Victorian Library or Grant Hall, Brace, Hall, Brace Laboratories were designed with a large rectangular Renaissance revival plan designed to house the physics program. A site was selected north of the library and directly west of University Hall. Shortly after uh, the site was announced, the athletic committee, chaired by C.R. Richards, petitioned the regents to reconsider the building site since it interfered with the original football field. A compromise plan involved simply removing the northeast corner of the new building's footprint so that the field could remain intact. It's really not a compromise. <laughs> the football team pictured here in late 2004 did not find the compromise very suitable since the building was very close to the south end zone. Brace is still under, constructed, under construction in this photo. And just to orient you, this set of uh, bleachers, the grandstand, backed up to 10th Street. Uh, it would be just up the street here. Um, and the field was in that northwest corner of campus. Ironically, the football field was relocated in 1908 so that C.R. Richards, chair of the athletic committee, could get his own new building on the site of the original field. The Mechanical Engineering Laboratories, now known as Richards Hall, is named in his honor. This is an aerial view of campus taken in the 1920s, and it shows us how compact and densely built the original campus had become by the turn of the century. The northwest corner of campus, on the left in this photo, um, was home to the old football field, and you can see Richards Hall and Brace Hall there in that corner. We can also see the old smokestacks from the original power plant and a few other not too impressive buildings. We see University Hall in the center of the photo with its top stories lopped off, and if you'll notice above it and a little to, the, to your right, uh, Nebraska Hall suffered the same decapitation. Along R Street, which is at the bottom of this photo, running to the right, um, at the corner of 10th and R, we see the original law school. Um, the first of many Ellery Davis designs to cover the campus. Next to it is the library, and across the lawn from the library, we also can see the original administration building designed by Thomas Kimball in 1906. For those of you who may not know, Thomas Kimball will be installed in the Nebraska Hall of Fame in the state capitol next month. Kimball is Nebraska's most respected historic architect and the designer of several important Nebraska buildings, as well as the master planner for the Trans-Mississippi Exposition in Omaha. He was instrumental in designing the competition for the state capitol building, um, and he was involved in that project as the capitol was constructed. And here's the, the little administration building that sat on R Street, approximately where um, the sculpture gardens are now. He introduces yet another style to campus. So at this point, we've got our Victorian eclectic. We've got uh, 
Renaissance Revival. We've got Franco-Italianate Hoosier. <laughs> and, and in just a few years after this, we'll have the sort of Romanesque um, Richards Hall. Sadly, the administration building was demolished in 1963 for the construction of the Sheldon Sculpture Gardens. It was really a kind of a victim of its own site. I think if it had been in a different part of campus, maybe that building could have been saved. But it sort of blocked entrance to the campus and blocked the view of the sculpture gardens, which were intended from the, pretty much from the beginning. Okay, we have been looking at pretty low-tech views of campus using black and white photos. But now my colleague Steve Colby from the Johnny Carson School will show us a different kind of view. Steve is using um, augmented reality and Google Earth. And this, is, this is really remarkable, but he's going to fly over campus and we can look at some of these sites as they appear today. He's going to fly us by the Capitol, just like at the football games. There we go. This little red uh, spot we see here is the park that's been created on the side of the original University Hall. And moving, let's see, move a little south of there, Steve. And here, uh, here's the corner of the sculpture garden where the administration building sat. It was kind of across from the library. Um, let's head over to Sheldon. Steve and I are quite a team. Okay, Sheldon um, is built almost exactly on the site of the chemistry laboratory, although it's significantly larger. North of Sheldon to the parking lot, this parking lot here, that would have been the location of Grant Hall. It would have extended uh, to the west into that area where Woods Hall is now. Um, and also in that parking area along 12th Street there would have been the original museum. Just a little stub of that museum was built, and it was also designed by Thomas Kimmel, but it was really not a real building. It was just a piece of a building. And then, of course, Hamilton Hall. You can't miss that, um, our largest building, I think, and it's built on the site of the first Nebraska Hall. Let's cruise over to um, Richards and Brace. Yeah. There's Richards Hall. That was the football field coming this way, and there's Brace Hall. Go back, go back north just a tad, Steve. There. See what's missing from Brace Hall? It's not a rectangle. It's kind of an L shape because of the football field. <laughs> That's what D.B. Brace gave up in the name of football. Okay, uh, coming south a little bit. Here we have the old library and the old law school, which now together form uh, Architecture Hall. So if we cruise down our street to the east, there's Love Library and the college, of the former CBA, now Louise Pound Hall. I want to thank whosoever, whoever had that great idea. I think it's a great idea. Um, and Steve, can you like go over kind of, yeah. I want everybody to make a mental note of the sidewalk that runs under this building. This is the library edition. 
And then north of the, li north of the library, up ahead past Ralph Mueller's tower, we have Memorial Mall. And I'm going to talk about these things in just a minute. Thank you, Steve. You're the master. And he's doing this with a broken hand. So as you can see from these photos, the campus is full. Every inch is built up, and we're out of room to grow our little university into something bigger. So what followed, this is the old law school, by the way, what followed was one of the most interesting and impactful decisions ever made, not necessarily by the university, kind of in conjunction with the university. In 1912, the state legislature passed a new law allowing for initiatives and referenda. This meant that issues could be placed directly on the ballot for a vote of the people. So what does this have to do with the University of Nebraska? It's very complicated. Many years before, Charles Bessie and others had begun to consider their options for growing the university. And Bessie suggested moving the entire enterprise to the farm where there was ample room for growth. Not many people listened. But by 1910, the campus was full and the farm was not. Chancellor Avery eventually supported the idea and became enthusiastic. The regents eventually came around, but it was a politically charged idea. Merchants in downtown Lincoln feared loss of revenue since barbershops, clothing stores, boarding houses, movie theaters, lunch rooms, and a host of other businesses all benefited from the cash that flowed down 11th Street. In this era, the regents could not make this decision without the support of the legislature, and I think even today that would be a tough, uh, tough thing to navigate. To abandon new buildings on the city campus and then ask the citizens of Nebraska to rebuild all new buildings at the farm seemed like an extravagance. But the, cons but the consolidation would have allowed the university to develop a planned campus with well-constructed and architecturally sympathetic buildings and, and nearly unlimited space for growth. The 1911 uh, Senate, we were still a house and a Senate. We weren't a unicameral yet. The 1911 Senate voted enthusiastically to support the removal so the House voted against it. The issue, the issue remained unsolved. Chancellor Avery hired, um, while this was going on, he had hired a highly respected Boston architectural firm, Shepley, Rutan, and Coolidge, to become the official architects of the university, hoping to build this distinctive and cohesive campus that Avery really wanted. The architects developed plans for a consolidated farm campus but there was such continued discord over the removal question that Avery also had them develop plans for an expanded city campus. Oops. That's the expanded farm campus. You can see the stadium and everything is out there, the football field. And they also um, built, uh, designed an expanded uh, city campus, and that's 12th Street running right through the center of it. So they're doubling, more than doubling the size of the, um, more than doubling the size of the campus. Um, the highly partisan 1913 legislature debated the question again. Finally, it was decided 
that the state should utilize the new initiative and referendum law. The issue was placed on the ballot and a statewide vote of the people would occur in 1914. In the meantime, merchants in downtown Lincoln um, outspent the university and hired a publicity firm. They um, peppered the state with anti-consolidation propaganda while the regents made these polite speeches and pleas to civic groups and newspaper interviews and things. Opponents focused on waste and cost, knowing that these were issues that would inflame Nebraska voters. University supporters focused on growth and improved facilities. The upside was that the, as the issue was being debated, the legislature recognized that the university had reached a desperate situation in regard to its buildings. They passed a bill that provided for six years of enhanced funding, regardless of which location scenario was approved for building improvements and or land acquisition. I think you all have guessed by now how this story ended, since we're here on city campus. The consolidation proposal was defeated by a margin of more than three to one, thanks to aggressive publicity, um, the, the aggressive publicity campaign waged by downtown merchants. But with the increase in funding provided by the legislature, Avery and his architects set out to design an expanded city campus. They purchased the property immediately east of the old campus, and the rest is history. Here's a map of our current campus, and this is the section that they bought in 1914 after the referendum. So what did these architects design? I'll go through these quickly because I know I'm rambling. They designed Bessie Hall, which Bessie unfortunately never worked in. Uh, they started work on the building just a few months after his death. These buildings, a lot of these buildings share common features like um, diagonal staircases. We see that in Louise Pound Hall, the old CBA, the old, which is the old social sciences building. And we see that in Bessie Hall. They designed a new chemistry laboratory, which we now call Avery Hall, although in these years it was known as the chemistry laboratory and was not named for Avery for another 20 years. They designed the first teacher's college building. And if this building looks odd to you, partly it's because they set it out in this field with nothing around it, clear over uh, on 14th Street, which was the far edge of the new property. And we see this interesting window, and that doesn't look very familiar to us, because we built this in 1957. <laughs> this is our current Canfield Administration building that attaches to the old teacher's college at the side of that window. Uh, and this explains the crazy stairwell in that building, <laughs> which is, you know, which is a challenging staircase. They also designed Louise Pound Hall, uh, which at that time was called the Social Sciences Building. On East Campus, they designed Philly Hall, home to the UNL Dairy Store, where one of our events is later this week. And they designed uh, Chase Hall at the head of the mall. And I think Chase really kind of finishes that mall in a beautiful way. Eventually, um, the official architects parted ways with the university, mainly because we built a stadium and we used local architects, thereby breaking the terms of the contract. The promise of a unified campus was never realized, but growth continued on the new property, and other properties were added as years passed. 
Ellery Davis of Davis and Wilson, which is now Davis Design, a local firm, became the go-to architect for campus. Davis and his firm went on to design over a dozen campus buildings beginning in the 1920s and including the stadium, the Coliseum, Morrill Hall, the Student Union, and Love Library. I'm almost done. In 1926, a new campus plan was developed by George Seymour, who was a regent. Seymour developed this interest in campus planning, and he went all over campus meeting with different groups and talking to folks about what campus should look like, and he came, he came up with this plan. The plan identified both Memorial Mall and the Quadrangle. Now, Memorial Mall, we see there coming out of the stadium, and we still know that mall. It's very much intact today. We, the Quadrangle, not so much. The Quadrangle is now the sidewalk that runs under the Love Library North addition. His plan also created historic Greek Row with sororities on the east side of 16th Street and fraternities on the west, and there was absolutely no question about them being next door to each other. They bought out the Sigma Chi House, which was on the east side, and moved it, gave them the lot on Vine Street because they did not want the frats and the sororities right next door to each other. <laughs> the modern core of our campus that we know today was clearly established by 1925. In the 1950s and 60s, rapid growth and enrollment brought seven high-rise dorms, two high-rise classroom buildings, and the next Nebraska Hall. It also brought Selleck Quadrangle, which kind of messed up the east end of the Quadrangle as well. Worn-out buildings on the old campus gradually disappeared, and today only four buildings remain to serve as evidence of the early university. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Nebraska Lecture featuring Kay Logan-Peters. Support for this program is provided by Humanities Nebraska and the National Endowment for the Humanities.